welcome everybody today to the podcast that we're doing uh, called Troubleshooting Opioid Dependence in the Primary Care Setting, in the GP setting. I'm Dr Hester Wilson, I'm a GP and addictions uh, specialist, and I'm joined this afternoon by Martina Gleeson, a fabulous GP, and Louisa Jansen, a fantastic consumer advocate, a human being with lived experience of opioid dependency. Um, so today we're going to be discussing opioid dependency and how we can manage that in, in the GP setting. So first of all, what do we mean by opioid dependency, opioid use disorder? Um, opioid use disorder is the DSM-5 category uh, and there is the ICD-11 category, which is slightly different. But what we're talking about here is people who have developed issues due to opioid use, whether that be prescribed opioids, and those can be opioids that are prescribed by us as GPs or specialists, or that are obtained from friends or bought on the street, or illicit opioids, things like heroin. It's really common for people that use those sedatives, those painkillers, um, to develop issues if they use them long-term. And the hallmarks of that, first of all, are a greater tolerance. So you need more to get the same effect. When you try to stop them, you can get specific withdrawal symptoms, things like nausea, vomiting, cramps, sweats, tearing, aches and pains, anxiety. It's an incredibly um, uncomfortable experience. On top of that, there are things like craving the medication, taking it for longer periods of time than intended, trying to cut down and being unsuccessful at that. And the way that it interferes with your life, things like not um, going to your job like you should or not being able to fulfill your roles and responsibilities in your life. Um, they're, they're getting that substance, whether it's a prescription opioid or other opioid, um, you know, it takes over your life and starts to become more important than other parts of your life. And it really starts to have impact. And so when we're seeing someone in a general practice setting, it may be that we're seeing that they're having withdrawal symptoms, that they're finding that we're, they're needing a larger dose and it's really not helping them with their pain and that it's taking over their life and causing them harm, causing them harm in terms of their relationships, their vocation, their family, their kids. It's a global kind of thing that can disrupt the whole of their lives and have really serious impacts and really serious harm. Martina, I just wanted to come to you. When you think about this in the general practice setting, what are, what are the hallmarks for you that you notice? The most common presentation in my practice is people with chronic pain who are, for various reasons, and often iatrogenic, uh, find themselves on larger doses than I might be comfortable with um, or unable to reduce in the time frame that you would expect. And when you start doing your chronic pain management, you find, you know, so using activation techniques and re-education techniques and engaging in rehabilitation approaches, uh, you find that person is very resistant um, or just finds that they report that engaging in the techniques that I've been trying to use to manage their chronic pain um, is not helping and they cannot reduce the amount of opiates um, that they're taking. Um, the, uh, I get less presentations of people who may have a um, heroin addiction, for example, because I don't see a lot of new patients. Um, 
I would get that if one of my regular patients had started developing that kind of problem and hopefully we would have a good enough relationship that they would come to me with that problem. Uh, but yes, the majority of the presentations in my practice are that chronic pain going on for too long and not responding to pain management techniques type presentation. Yeah, I think that is actually uh, really common for us, more common, we're seeing it more commonly now. And it is a tricky thing to work out. Are they actually asking for more pain relief? Are they taking higher doses? Are they taking it for longer than intended? Uh, because they've got pain. And the reality is that they that they will have pain, you know. So that's so they are going to have pain. The question is, have they then developed this, this other issue because of the substance, because of the medicine on top of their pain? Mm. I, I do want to come back for a moment, Martina, to that group of people who who, who don't have pain, who develop it um, through through use, be it heroin or they've obtained it other ways. M many of them actually do have a history of pain, but but what I find generally for people that have come to it, not through the pain pathway, um, is that they come in seeking help because they've recognised that they cannot continue. Their lives have been really adversely affected by this addiction that has overtaken their lives. And I wanted to come to Louisa um, Louisa, to ask you just to just to give us a little bit of an idea about your journey towards actually developing a problem with opioids for a start and, and, and how you came to seek help and how you asked for help. Thanks, Hester. Um, I had been, I started working in the sex industry to try and save money for things that weren't drug related, that were more lifestyle related. And I saved that money and I kept working and I found that work was taking its toll on me. And one day after work, someone said to me, Louise, are you drinking half a bottle of tequila at the end of every day? Why don't you just try heroin? You won't believe it. And this was around 1990. It was just starting to become a, a popular recreational drug. So I tried it and straight away, all my trauma, all my emotional, my psychological pain, everything went out the window. So the next day I was offered again and I was using very minute amounts and I ended up using a small amount every day. It was a Friday night until the next Friday night. And then I started thinking about the stigma around heroin and thought, shit, is this really what I want to be doing? Maybe I should just stop now and go, okay, this is something I can have like a drink whenever I feel like it. So I got home from work, I, my throat started feeling really awful, it felt dry and scratchy, I started sweating, I got goosebumps, I felt all the things that you had previously described in your, in your description, withdrawal is a most uncomfortable feeling and I literally lay in bed tossing and turning all that night wondering how soon I could contact my friends that had gotten me this heroin the next day. So I went and had it and I said to them, I felt really sick when I stopped using it. And they're like, didn't you know that? Don't, don't you? And I sort of got a really mild education about it. And nobody mentioned methadone, nobody mentioned treatment. And maybe it was for that those people's benefit as well. They kept me in the dark about treatment because I was financing a lot of their use as well because I only needed a small amount, but I'd buy a large amount and they'd use the rest of it. So I literally continued on like that. I'd try to stop, I'd get a couple of days and then I'd start again. 
So I was using between 50 and $100 worth a day for quite a long time. And then one day the people I was using with had some financial issues and my girlfriend said to me, oh, we have to drive my boyfriend to the chemist. He's got to get methadone. So I went with them and when he was in the chemist, I said to my friend, what's methadone? And they're like, don't you know? So it was explained to me and these people said to me, using heroin's a 10-year sentence. It'll take you 10 years to pull your ass out of that. If you use methadone, you'll be in there for life. So I sort of saw this thing and just thought, oh, I don't want to have to be going to the chemist for life. I'm like, do you actually have to walk in there and they give it to you in front of other people? I was already ashamed enough as it was. I didn't have the wherefore to talk about my traumatic past. So I just continued to use heroin until such a time as I entered the realm of Kirkton Road Centre and they started to explain stuff to me. And by this time, I had a boyfriend and he was arrested for doing burglaries and he wasn't able to do that anymore. So he said, come on, and we're going to go on methadone. So I went with him to a doctor of his choosing. I followed blindly. I went to the doctor, waited for the permit, went to a pharmacy because he had gone to a pharmacy. And after my first 25 mil dose, I walked 10 minutes up the hill and the relief, the sheer relief that I felt, I felt more normal than normal is the best way I could describe it. I suddenly felt the stress and the strain of having to go out and do sex work to school, watch my boyfriend going in and out of jail. All that went out the window and it was only four or five dollars a day back then. So I just thought it was wonderful and I continued on methadone and I might leave it there for now. I ended up switching over to Subutex. I don't know if you would like me to talk about that at this point. Yeah, Louisa, we might come back to that. Thank you. Yeah, so, so I started the world of OAT on methadone. And right. with that, I was able to not use or use very, very small amounts. So I think, Louisa, listening to that, um, what I'm hearing is that there was a lot of shame and and uh, stigma associated with that use. But what it gave you was it gave you release and relief from a whole heap of stuff that was going on for you psychologically. And that's really quite a common thing that can happen um, for people. And, and Martina, just coming back to you, and certainly for Louisa, she didn't come through that pain pathway, the physical pain pathway. But the first thing I'm thinking of is what about psychological pain? Uh, you know, and, and opioids actually really do relieve that. And certainly in my experience, the people that I'm seeing that have chronic pain, they have psychological pain quite often as well. And so opioids address that, but it does increase your risk of actually developing a, a, a dependence, a tolerance, and therefore needing treatment. Have you, have you got any experience of that at all, Martina? Certainly I have. Uh, it's interesting, there are some people where you would be quite aware of the psychological trauma that they've experienced and uh, therefore would be aware of the increased risk of um, prescribing uh, medications that they could de develop a dependence on. Um, but then sometimes you're in a position where they need something genuinely to manage, a, you know, 
a physical or a psychological distress, you know, a sudden bereavement, uh, a broken leg. Um, and you can't really say, look, you shouldn't have this because you've got a past history of trauma and you've got an increased risk of addiction. Uh, but you probably do need to be really actively managing it uh, and you know, discussing the risks and benefits because some people will choose then to use other capacity that they have to manage their symptoms of distress um, rather than put themselves in a situation. Um, other people will say, I don't care, give me the drugs now, we'll deal with that problem later. So I think it, like one of the things I heard in Louise's story was that there was no informed consent at any stage. Uh, and I think when, if we know our patients well and we're aware of their trauma history, we need to engage in informed consent um, with them when we're prescribing any medication that might be a problem for them in the future. Sometimes we don't have that opportunity. And then if we have a patient who is developing uh, an opioid use disorder, we need to acknowledge the trauma. Um, and we need to acknowledge the impact of psychological distress um, on how they're handling the issues that they have. Because if we don't, we're only treating part of the problem and uh, we're actually in the business of treating patients, not problems. Thanks, Martina. I think the other thing that came out for me, Louisa, and what you were saying was how even within you know 15 minutes of that first dose, you felt more normal than normal. And it's a really common thing that I find with patients that quite often are reluctant to go on treatment. And there is a bit of stuff out there about, oh, you know, the golden cufflinks or the liquid um, handcuffs, you know, you're never going to get off it. But very commonly they will say, oh my goodness, you know, I wish I had started this earlier. This is so much better. Um, Louisa, I just wanted to come back to you and, and just ask, uh, you know, so for you, it was, there was a fair bit of shame. You didn't have a lot of knowledge. You kind of pick things up along the way. And as Martina was saying, there really wasn't much conversation with you that helped you make informed decisions. When you think back to starting on methadone, what would have it been helpful for, your, for a doctor, for a GP to ask to help um, you access treatment to help them understand what was going on for you and to make that that transition easier for you? Um, I think it would have been really helpful if the doctor that I had seen said to me, do you have any idea what's compelling you to do this? Is there anything that you might like to talk about? Would you like to engage in some sort of counselling just to explore what's going on for you in life at the moment or take stock of where you're at? Those sort of things would have been nice to hear. But I was also in a DV relationship. So when I was at the doctors, my partner was quite controlling and instructed the doctor what to do. And I think the doctor wasn't too comfortable with him either. But even for the chemist to hand me a pamphlet about exactly what I was taking and just any information at all because everything I ended up finding out, I found out from other people that were on the program and that information was quite skewed or quite biased a lot of the time and maybe people were, like people would say, why don't you put your dose up, you get more stoned. And I sort of thought, and then someone else said, oh, no, don't put your dose up, then there's more that you've got to come off. And I'd hear so many different opinions. I ended up just staying on the methadone 
because I was feeling quite fine. My psychological and emotional stress had gone out the window. But like you've asked me, the GP didn't actually touch base in any other way than writing that prescription and putting in the permit. So it just would have been really nice not to be asked, oh, have you got a history of trauma or this? Or is there anything you'd like to touch base about? Did you want to have a chat to someone about where you are in life and take stock? That sort of an approach, I think, if people, because if people aren't coming in from a pain angle, I think most people that use heroin have experienced trauma on some level at some time or through using heroin, they then experience trauma as I did when I when I started doing more sex work, I experienced more trauma and then you want to use more. So, Yeah, so look, thank you so much for that, Louisa. It's, it's such an important issue and I, I have to say I am concerned that you went into an appointment with your partner and it sounds like at no time the GP saw you on your own to actually um, work with you through with you what your goals were and to explain to you what the treatment meant. Um, that, that does concern me. I was actually able to get away from that partner and the first interaction I had with that GP on my own was good. He made me aware of newer treatments that were coming in around 99 and 2000 and said, if you don't feel comfortable on methadone, I can get you off that and then we can start you on something else. Unfortunately, and this was many years ago, he said, I probably shouldn't tell you this. If you want to get off methadone, use every day for six weeks and then take two or three days to come off the gear. And that was the advice he gave me, but I just continued on my methadone and kept reducing. So, yeah. and I also changed to a female doctor at that stage who was much more savvy about the program and what was involved. And she was feeding me information that I'd never heard before that I was really happy to have. So yeah, my initial experience wasn't so good, but I managed to navigate my way. And because I was on methadone, I managed to get away from that, that partner. And I think if I'd still been using and locked in that active cycle and hadn't at least gone on that treatment, I probably never would have got out of there and I'd still be there using or dealing today. So so, and, and it's certainly something that we know, Louisa, is that those treatments, methadone and buprenorphine, which are the two options available in Australia, are really effective. But also it's things like they give you financial independence. They stop you from relying on, um, let me say, sketchy people um, who are taking advantage of you. Uh, you know, so, so that it really is, that, you know, the, the evidence is clear. There's, this is strongly evidence-based treatment that improves outcomes for people. And, you know, it, it changes injecting behaviours, it changes risk of overdose, it decreases those, it engages people in treatment so that they actually get the other care that they need as well. Martina, I wanted to come back to you and just thinking about, for, for us as GPs, if we're thinking... I wonder if there is a dependency, a prescription opioid use disorder or an opioid use disorder going on here. Well, how, how would you ask? Can you give some tips about how you might ask about that? One of my approaches is to start, ask the patient to describe what their experience is when their dose is coming to you. And um, often they'll say, I've got more pain if they started on it with a pain um, issue. Uh, but then if I might start to feed some of the symptoms of withdrawal into the questions, um, you know, are you experiencing yawning or 
does this do, do you get goose pimples um are you feeling agitated or anxious you know what is the level of your pain when you're coming due for your next dose um and i know we don't like using numbers is not all that useful but it does actually just plant the seed for the patient to then check in with themselves and um and really what is their experience and <clears throat> my experience is it sometimes takes quite a long time multiple conversations a lot of patience on my part um, and probably patients on on the part of the patient as well because they have to be patient with me and me asking these questions that I don't necessarily see as relevant themselves uh, so that involves needing to have a good relationship a trusting relationship uh, that we've built up over a long period of time so that then they can eventually like and very non-judgmental so they can eventually feel like it is safe to to admit to themselves and to me that actually it might not be pain that they're taking the medication for anymore it might be that it's to overcome the discomfort of not having the medication i think that's a really important Point, Martina. So what we're talking about here is that, you know, the reality is that we know quite often opioids are not useful for the management of chronic non-cancer pain. Uh, but, but people keep taking them because when they stop, they feel dreadful. Um, I guess the other thing I just wanted to flag was the, the difference between dependence and risky use. Uh, and so thinking about uh, how that might present, so we talked about dependence, but the other thing is risky use. So you might have someone who is on a high dose, and I'm talking, you know, probably more than 100 oral morphine equivalents, which is 75 um, milligrams of oxycodone. As we know, as the dose goes up, so does the risk of harm. So does the risk of overdose um, and, and death, you know, and that's one of the issues that we're seeing on those higher doses is people actually overdosing and dying. Quite often they're on multiple medications that are sedating. They may also be using some alcohol or other substances that are sedating as well. So do be aware of the dose and the risk that that imparts and the fact that somebody might be on a lower dose, but then they get a chest infection. And so the, the, the risk is usey because it, the use is risky because they've actually got in, um, lung uh, impairment that leads to increased risk. The other thing I just wanted to flag at this point in terms of that risk of overdose is the use of naloxone. Um, naloxone is available as, as an in injection or as an, an intranasal spray and it is, you can prescribe it on the PBS. I certainly do prescribe it sometimes myself. Martina, is that something that you've done in your setting at all? Um, yes, it is, Hester, um, and it's an interesting discussion to have with the patient because uh, it comes as quite a shock sometimes to a patient that you're flagging uh, a risky level of use when they, they don't feel like, um, that, that they may not feel that they're approaching that risky level of use. Uh, so, um, and to point out that if the patient was to get unwell or have a little more alcohol or an antihistamine and all of a sudden they're at risk of the opiate causing more harm than they thought it might, um, you know, and a risk of overdose can be uh, a bit of a heads up, a bit of a shock to the patient. Um, and so then we talk about harm minimisation and that while we're going through this process, we really want the patient to... Um, not have any unintended consequences of uh, what's been going on. So um, it, 
it's a great medication to uh, use to protect patients from those unintended consequences. Uh, but what it means I need to do is educate the patient and I also need to educate the people around them uh, so that um, they know how to use it because if the patient's having an overdose, they're unlikely to be able to administer it to themselves. And that awareness of the patient and also the fact that they're going to need to discuss this with their loved ones can sometimes um, make them make a decision different to what they were intending and uh, try to use some of the other um, other ways of managing chronic pain if that's the situation we're in um, so that they don't increase their dose and they don't um, go into that risky um, level of dosing. Uh, so it can be helpful, A, to protect the patient and minimise harm and B, uh, to encourage the patient to make different decisions. Yeah, that's so true. And I think it is what it is really important for us to be flagging with our patients that these medicines, they're good medicines, but they have risk. And this is not a judgment of you, you know, it's it's not anything you're doing, it's just the reality of opioids and human beings. And the, the risk goes up as the dose goes up. Louisa, one of the things you were saying before is that with that first doctor that you saw, you didn't get a whole heap of information. Um, and, and it sounds like he gave you some information that wasn't entirely correct. You then moved to another doctor who you, you felt did a better job. Could, could you explain to us how, what was better? What, what did that doctor do that was different, that, that was better for you? For a start, she was more interested in checking in with me about where my life was at. She also asked me, did I have any questions about the program? She also made me aware of the new Subutex treatment that was going to be starting within a few months. Um, and she just would talk more to me when I talked to her about stuff that was going on in my life. She'd sort of make conversation or make comment about those things. And I think she just gave me a better perspective on the program, more knowledge, more accurate knowledge, not little tricks like, oh, use for six weeks and you'll be right sort of thing and she was more interested in keeping me solidly on the program not using on top of it with a view to perhaps coming off it at some stage to start the subutex treatment because I was starting to feel a little over sedated on methadone. So it's subutex which is um, buprenorphine mono so it's buprenorphine without the naloxone added was one of the first treatments yeah. that Kate was was available in Australia so you shifted from methadone to buprenorphine can you tell me a little bit about what that switch was like and what what the experience well, yeah. of being on buprenorphine was like for you okay just for a start coming off methadone I needed to come off methadone and because it was still pretty much a pilot program they told me that I couldn't use for a week in that week I overdosed once in the injecting rooms I overdosed really close to KRC and managed to drag myself up the stairs before I passed out and they narcanned me up there and that was just me trying not to use waiting for this pilot program to start and trying to get the week of not using together which was really difficult and trying to get that week together was so difficult, but I think the way they were treating people in those days was still a little bit punitive, if you like, and there still was a lot of stigma towards people that were on programs. 
but I did end up on Subutex and my doctor said to me, like everybody else, Louisa, I guarantee you, you'll try using on top of it. Let me know how it goes. So I picked up my dose for three days and on the fourth day I thought, stuff this, it'll just be like the don't. So I had one $50 deal, I had a second one, I had a third one and then I remembered her talking about overdosing while being on this stuff. So I thought I'll try one more and the fourth shot I had I felt for about 20 seconds and the feeling went away and I said, well stone the crows, that's how this stuff works. I actually can't use on top of it and that was the start of a successful program for me. And I'm not saying that methadone was bad because that was what made me feel more normal than normal and initially gave me hope that there was a way out of this because I would just go into withdrawal every time I stopped using. I thought there was no way out. I thought there was no help. I thought everyone was rude. Everyone treated me like a piece of rubbish. And finally, I came across this doctor that wanted to help me be on a program, wanted to help me solve some of my life issues and wanted to get me onto a second trial that was actually working quite well for me. And yeah, I was just really glad to have found her. And strangely enough, she was in the same practice as the first doctor that I saw and then ended up going out on her own. So. Yeah, so and certainly uh, methadone is a very good treatment. Um, what you found for you was that one of the one of the ways that buprenorphine works is it has a really strong affinity for receptors and so it actually blocks and hangs on to the new receptors so you can put in lots of other opioids on top but they don't have much effect which is what you found so you used a lot of heroin and it did very little that uh, I, I think it was interesting that your doctor said look I know people usually use on top but be careful with that have a go and see how it goes for you so it was it was engaging with you it wasn't you know giving you a hard time it was just letting you know the reality um, and and what it allowed that relationship with that GP allowed you to actually stay in treatment and to benefit from treatment um, so so it really flags for me the importance of that therapeutic alliance now, one of the things that I think is can be tricky for us in the general practice setting is that we've got someone who is on a dose of opioids that we're concerned about you know so let's, let's pick a number out of the sky for example you know 120 milligrams oral morphine equivalent um, and we're, we're concerned about their risk and we've had the conversation as you've said Martina we've talked about the risk we've talked about the fact that they're still in pain that they still have um, ongoing mental health issues and we've worked with them and as you've said it does take a period of time for them to get to a point where they're ready to start changing uh, and in our minds, we're probably keeping the idea of could this they could they have actually developed a prescription opioid use disorder, um, and we might flag that as a possibility. Um, but what we're looking at is can we work together to slowly decrease that dose and put those other non-opioid and non-pharmacological options in place. I wanted to ask you, Martina, with that with that weaning conversation, what have you found is helpful in terms of talking to people about the process of, of, of starting to wean and how they can manage it and how you manage that as a team? Uh, interesting, Hester. So um, sometimes what I find most useful is uh, addressing this using motivational interviewing techniques. You start off by talking about how um, the body becomes tolerant and so you 
tend to need more and more of the same medication uh, with less and less effect. And, and then I try to, you know, we've started the conversation already when we're using opiate medication for pain relief, um, talking about function. And so we go back to that discussion about function. What do you want to be doing? What's important to you? Uh, where are your values? What do you want to be doing? How uh, is this assisting you? And what, what feedback are you getting from um, your family and your friends around you? Uh, because what they might find is that uh, what they thought was helping is actually hindering the very things that are important to them, like interaction with their family or friends, being able to do their work in a clear-headed way. Um, so you use the principles of motivation or interviewing to elicit change talk and uh, get the patient involved in solving the problem themselves. I'll give you an example that's uh, maybe a little bit out of left field. Uh, it's an 85-year-old lady who had quite severe spinal canal stenosis. She was on a bit of Targin and a bit of Lyrica. Uh, she couldn't use non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs because they had caused a, an acute kidney injury and uh, um, an episode of congestive cardiac failure um, because of her other comorbidities. But what she was, what I was being told by her family members was that she was sleeping through the day uh, and she, they weren't enjoying conversations with her anymore and they were worried that she was developing dementia because her memory wasn't so good and she just wasn't on the ball. I discussed this with my patient and, um, and explored with her the possibility of weaning down some of the, the Tarjan and the Lyrica gradually. Um, and we did it, we, we um, reduced the Lyrica first uh, and then when we got her off the Lyrica, we reduce the Tarjan just by the smallest steps that we were um, able to do. Um, and she came back to me and she said, she said, well, you were right. I must have been addicted, to use her words, uh, because I experienced withdrawal every time you reduce the dose. Um, but she admitted that her pain levels had not really gone up and um, but she was feeling a lot better, uh, more clear-headed in herself. And at the end of the process, her daughter came to me and gave me a hug because it was pre-COVID times and thanked me for bringing her mother back, uh, admitted that she was very concerned about dementia, but it was just the medication and her mother was back to her normal level of function, uh, which was fantastic. Her motivation for what she wanted was higher than the distress of the short-term withdrawal. She had some internal resources and she had a lot of family support, so she was able to get through it. Look, and I think, Martina, that's it's really important to flag that while your 80-year-old patient may not feel like the typical patient, the reality is that people have more pain as they get older and opioids are used in elderly people, in older Australians, and the pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics changes get older there are multiple medications and so you need to have your antennas up for risk and harm at much lower levels and the other really important thing um, that comes out of what you say and is really clear from the evidence is that the vast majority of people once they stop their opioids get better their pain actually improves so you, there are many people who with with support and you're absolutely right about those internal supports and the family supports 
don't underestimate the support that you as the GP can be providing as well. And that's certainly a, um, a very clear message that has come to me from a number of patients is, please don't abandon me. I need your support to get through this. Having you there, being able to cheerlead and support me to do this has been incredibly important. That collaborative approach that works with that person to cut that dose down at a rate that they can manage, that supports them through that, that puts the other options in place to support them is incredibly important. But I want to come back, Martina, sorry, I'll, I'll hand over to Martina because she's got to say something. Having said that, Hester, uh, I've had other patients who are on higher doses than my 80-year-old lady. And um, it, through the process of engaging with them and making sure that they were only getting their medication from me so I could have an idea of what they were actually taking, um, they might have been on much higher doses than what my 80-year-old lady was and they'll get down to a certain point and, th and then they can't get any further. Uh, and that's when we need to start having a conversation about opioid replacement therapy because um, through the process of recognising that what they're experiencing um, is withdrawal rather than worsening of their pain, um, we can start that conversation about using opioid replacement therapy rather than just gradually reducing the doses. Absolutely. And that is a very, very common situation. And it is one of, one of the trickinesses for us in general practice is they've got, they've got pain, have they developed a problem with their opioids? You're cutting down that dose and people will get to a point where they go, it doesn't matter what I do, I just cannot get this dose down. I have the withdrawals, I feel terrible, I'm taking extra, I just can't do this. And that's at the point we absolutely, as Martina, as you said, um, we'd be considering, is this person a candidate for methadone, buprenorphine, sublingual or long-acting injectable? And so one of the things I wanted to just check in with you, Martina, is thinking about if, if you as a GP have got someone like this, the process for starting someone on treatment, would you do that in your practice? And would there be certain would you be looking for certain criteria to make sure the patient is suitable for your practice before you started? Would you be looking for specialist support? Just give me a bit of a sense of, of, of how you would manage that in your, in your GP setting. Well, I haven't done it very often, but uh, for the particular patient I'm thinking of, uh, Hester, I, I got some help from you. Um, our local area has a GP liaison alcohol and drug service, and I was able to ring that service and um, get some advice on how to manage uh, initiating this process with my patient. I did a lot of reading and preparing and uh, the whole, it actually took quite some time for the patient and I to plan uh, the process of starting them on treatment. This was um, a patient who was employed and so they had to plan to take some time off and uh, the, because of the doses they were on, we had to um, find a time when it was convenient for my patient to um, stop taking their opiate medication and, and I had to be available to do reviews of the patient so that um, we could catch them when they were starting to get early signs of withdrawal um, before we started the medication. So um, I was very well supported and that made it easier for me to start um, doing a process that was novel for me because I think whenever you're doing something that's 
view and not without risk, it's good to have support. Um, so I was very grateful for that um, alcohol and drug liaison service. Um, the other sorts of things that we had to consider, um, it was a good way for me to manage this patient because he was my regular patient. He didn't see anybody else. Um, he wasn't uh, accessing medication from anywhere else. Uh, he had also had a regular pharmacist for dispensing. And so we were able to um, liaise with the pharmacist to develop this plan. And so it was an ideal situation because the patient was very motivated for change and we had a team, a small team around them to support them. And, and part of that team was the alcohol and other drugs team who were able to give me moral support while I was instigating this treatment with him. That's great. And look, I have to say, I'm really glad that you were supported by your, your specialist team to do that. Um, and look, and that's what the drug and alcohol specialist teams are for. And there are GPs who specialise in this area as well. Um, if you're interested in, in finding out more about this, there are some training programs, including the OTAC course, where you can become an authorised prescriber, but also a shorter um, online course that's available 24-7, which gives you some background in terms of how you start Suboxone. So in New South Wales, any doctor can commence and treat up to 20 people on buprenorphine, whether that's Subutex, Suboxone or the long-acting injectables. And any doctor can take over the care of 10 people who are stable on methadone. So I'd really encourage you to um, go and take a look at those to get some more information. And um, shake the hand of Martine for taking on um, that person in her practice who, you know, because of the shame was not able to see anybody else and had that really strong therapeutic alliance. Uh, and and, and, you know, once again, we're seeing that this treatment actually really, really benefits people. I think when I'm thinking about in the general practice setting, who is an appropriate person for you to start in your setting, you need to make that decision around whether they are stable enough. And if you're not sure, then reach out for help. You have DASIS, which is the Drug and Alcohol Specialist Advisory Service, and your local drug and alcohol teams. And I have to say that certainly my local drug and alcohol team that I'm involved in would love it if a GP was ringing saying, I've got this person, I want to start on treatment, can you help me? We'd be turn it, rolling over backwards to, to support that because it is such a, an important um, process and it, it's not rocket science to do it, but there's a bit of toing and froing and feeling confident about how you do that. And you're absolutely right, Martina, that um, people do, if they're on a, a pure agonist, whether that is heroin or oxycodone or fentanyl or whatever, they do need to be in withdrawal before you start them on buprenorphine, which is a partial agonist antagonist. So there is a bit of toing and froing there. Um, we're fortunate in New South Wales that we do have some private clinics. So it is possible that what you can do is liaising with your private clinic where the person can dose and be commenced there or through the public clinics or in a local pharmacy as, as Martina did. Um, I just wanted to check in with you, Martina. I mean, you had that one person that you commenced. What about the the process for a GP of deciding to take over the care of somebody that's been stabilised on treatment. What do you think would be the important kind of factors that you'd need to think about as a GP before you decided to take that person on? Well, the first thing is I'd have to have the capacity. Um, 
the patient needs to be seen quite regularly. And so I would need to be able to have the capacity to see the patient on that regular basis and um, set up regular appointments. I would prefer if it was one of my own established patients that I already have a relationship with. And that's partly because my books have been closed for a while. So um, it's easier for me to expand the amount of care I'm giving to somebody who I already have a medical history on and established relationship with. Uh, that patient would need to be able to commit to the regular appointment. Um, and I'd like to have some kind of contract with them, obviously, uh, for permission to prescribe opiate replacement therapy. Uh, you are the only one who holds that permission. Um, so you need to be able to have a contract with the patient. And the contract is also protecting the patient because if I go on leave, my contract with the patient is that I won't leave them without their medication. So I need to do a little bit of organising in advance before I take leave. Um, I'd want to be able to check with SafeScript to make sure that the patient was only getting their medication from me. In my local area, that's not available just yet, but they say it will be available by the end of May. And I think that will enhance my ability to provide this kind of care. Um, that's also benefit for the patient to be seeing their GP for this kind of care because we provide whole of patient care. Um, that's what we're supposed to be doing anyway. So I get to do the risk screening for cardiovascular disease and cancer and the other risk screening that we should be doing for all of our patients. Um, and I can help them with managing their mental health or domestic violence or other parts of their life uh, that also require management and assistance. So there are definitely some benefits um, and so if we can meet the other requirements, it would be something that I'd definitely be open to. Yeah, that is so true. And look, in drug and alcohol, we are funded and our role is around drug and alcohol. And we do do some general health care, but it's not our expertise. We are not general practitioners. And that's what you guys are, are for. And it, it's, it's fantastic to have you involved. And certainly if somebody is very stable and able to come to appointments and able to commit to, you know, a, a, a behaviour that you you um, set up with them around how you're going to manage this program with them, you have that real advantage of being there for the long term and being able to manage them over a period of time. I didn't mention the other really important thing is proper clinical handover of care. So obviously it needs to be documented because I need to provide that documentation to apply for permission to prescribe a drug of addiction. But it wouldn't hurt, help if, it wouldn't work if the patient just rocked up and said, oh, the drug and alcohol people said I could see you now. That hasn't been my experience. Drug and alcohol people haven't done that, but all situations of clinical handover of care are important. And this one is particularly important because not only do you need that documentation, but you also need a plan for how you're going to manage things into the future. What kind of weaning program would be appropriate and when it would be appropriate to send the patient back to the drug and alcohol team if necessary. 
Absolutely, that is so true. Uh, and if you do get someone turning up saying the drug and alcohol team said I could come and see you, I would ask, I would encourage you to ring the drug and alcohol team and find out what the story is. Do not, do not just accept that and take it on at face value. You do need to liaison with them so that everybody knows um, what's happening with treatment so that person gets the best possible treatment they can. Uh, I, I, the other thing is just looking at um, the experience of the, the specialist treatment service. So Martina, you've talked about that handover of care, um, you know, getting advice. Um, I wanted to come to Louisa and just ask you, Louisa, around uh, your experience of the, the specialist drug and alcohol services and what, what do you think is their role uh, in terms of assisting you and, and other people that um, experience this, this condition? Um, to help you manage it. I just need to ask quickly, when you say specialist drug and alcohol services, do you mean public clinics? Uh, public or clinics, private specialists? Private specialists, yeah, uh, both. Okay, yeah. sorry. There was a time where I was about 18 months into the Subutex treatment where I decided I hooked up with some people didn't pick up my dose for a few days and I started using again. And after four days of using, I didn't want to be using. I was happy on my program and I felt too ashamed to go back to the doctor because by this time, the female doctor had had a baby and passed me on to an addiction specialist up at East Sydney Doctors. And I was too ashamed to go back there because I'd never faltered from the program. So really embarrassed, I ended up in Granville. So I dragged myself out to Westmead Hospital, explained my situation. I just got a bit brave. And they then transferred me to the clinic at West, which used to be behind Westmead Hospital, the addiction centre behind Cumberland, sorry, used to be there. So I started going there. <clears throat> I'd never picked up from a public clinic before and on my first day there I was waiting and someone went to walk towards me and a staff member said, you leave her alone, go deal somewhere else sort of thing. And I would see a lot of interactions and stuff going on around the clinic and I thought, okay, I'm here, I need to stabilise, I need to stabilise. So after a couple of weeks, I went back to East Sydney doctors, I made an appointment, I spoke to him and said, look, I felt really ashamed that I couldn't come back here. He said, no, what you did was the, bit, the next best thing you could do. So when I completely fell off the rails and I had a lot of shame and guilt around stuff, to be able to literally crawl into a public clinic on the bones of my ass, be pulled up off the ground and stabilised back on Subutex was an absolute blessing. But then I felt I didn't need that much support anymore. So when I talked to the addiction specialist, and he was a specialist that I saw at East Sydney Doctors, he said, are you a KRC client? And I said, yes. He said, had you ever thought about maybe starting to talk a bit about things like the female doctor had suggested years ago, maybe try some counselling, just go up there and chat to them. How many people do you chat to in your day that's not about drugs? Just go and shoot the breeze with them. And so I started doing that. I started working through issues. Um, my need for my dose became less and less over time. And in the end, I kid you not, I was on 0 0.02 and 0 0.01 of a mil because without that in my system, I thought I was going to use. So I would stay on those really, really, really low doses for really long periods of time. I'd be at the chemist. He never allowed me a takeaway 
because in the early days, people were unfortunately injecting subutex and losing limbs and stuff like that. So it didn't allow me takeaways. Um, but I stayed on that program and I ended up with the help of a counsellor and then I found my way to NA. And it was a doctor that had suggested that. The meeting was literally up the road and across the road from the surgery and I started doing that. I found support there because I was too ashamed to ask my family for any support. I hadn't spoken to them for years and they hadn't tried to contact me. So I finally found the support I needed. I found someone to, that I initially shot the breeze with which turned into discussing more pressing issues, the things that were driving my emotional and psychological pain and finding ways and strategies around that. And as I did that, as I said, my need for the drug lessened and one day I just bit the bullet and stopped my dose. I think I might have dosed every second day for a little while. But um, I just fully entrenched myself in meetings for 90 days after that and sitting in those meetings, which the doctor referred me to, KRC never suggested it, the public clinic never suggested it. It just got the idea through my head that there was another way besides being on a program as well, that I'd reached that stage. And from there, and I still continue counselling with KRC today, many, many years down the track. And sometimes still when I go in there, I have to do a basic reality check because life is normal if you like, but there are still things about life and living skills that maybe I'm a bit shy of possessing. Thank you, Louisa. It's so brilliant to hear about your journey uh, and just how important getting support, um, you know, through friends and family, NA, through your doctors, through the services and, and the place that the specialist service had for you at a time when you really had hit rock bottom for you. And it's terrific that you were able to overcome your sense of, of, of shame to actually get the support that you needed. Um, I just wanted to think about, uh, you know, that, that, that issue of completing treatment and so finishing treatment. And look, there are some people who probably will stay on their treatment lifelong, but there are others like you, Louisa, who have got to a point in your life where you, you can actually shift that and you've cut down to those really tiny doses uh, and then have been able with counselling support to actually stop it completely. And that's certainly one of the roles that in the general practice setting, we, we can play a really important role working with people who are really stable in their treatment, um, have gotten the support that they need, have done the counselling that they need to come to terms with their trauma, with their past, with the things that have happened in their life, uh, and are now ready to cut their dose down to cease. And, you know, that's something that I have done quite a lot over the years is helping people just cut their dose down, moving towards actually completing and stopping treatment. You might hear sometimes people talk about, oh, I'm just going to jump off. My experience is if you don't gently cut it down and get your life together, that you're going to relapse back to back to um, the, the condition, back to using the drug or using the medication, because you do need to build skills around a life that is, is free from opioids. And Louisa, I'm seeing you nodding. Would you like to add something about that? Um, yeah, I think like there's so many things to learn. Being on opiates does emotionally and psychologically sedate you in a lot of ways. So there's a lot of things that go on in life that you don't so much notice. But with a gradual reduction of my dose, 
and a, a gradual reintroduction of different living skills, I was able to make those changes because as one thing was going, other supports, other ideas and other activities were coming into my life. And I don't think anyone but the patient is really ready to pick when that final moment is. And I just believe that if people are given the support that, and often you have to seek out these supports for yourself or you just need the doctor to say, okay, have you heard of this? And maybe more than other people, I've got a bit more the where for all, like when the doctor said NA, I just Googled it straight away and found a meeting up the road that Thursday sort of thing. So I think it's important though, um, uh, one thing that I felt, thought was really good about the public clinic was when I was there, they said to me straight away, how's your housing? Have you got any legal issues? Have you, have you got any child protection issues? Have you got, and they were quite willing, quite ready to facilitate any help that I may need in those areas and I thought, wow, these public clinics are awesome, man. If I just walked out of jail, I didn't have custody of my kids and I was up to my, but I'd love to be coming here. And I think there are clients that need that support usually pretty early on when they get to the program. But as those issues die down, and I wouldn't say that being on a program is bad or wrong or that life is better now, but I was doing something different then to the things that I'm choosing to do now. And what I could do then was all the capacity that I had. And what I'm doing now is what I have the capacity to do now. So engaging supports I think is really important. And there is NA, there is smart recovery and I've made relationships in there that are stronger than family relationships. But just particularly with things like SMART or LifeRing or NA, I think what you get is that identification. And it's one thing to talk to your prescriber and your prescriber can be the most empathetic person in the world, but have they ever really hung out from opiates? Do they ever really know what it feels that when you get in the shower, the water coming at you feels like a nail gun shooting nails at you because you're that sensitive and things like that? So I didn't sort of look down on the doctor, but I just thought, okay, I need to find that identification somewhere else. And most of the people I found that identification with hadn't just gone from heroin to recovery. They'd gone from heroin to a program from any, any length of time um, into recovery from there. But I, I just think as, as much as much support, as many ideas as a GP can offer the client, even things like the recovery college in this local health district where people can do day or three or four day courses where they learn about being on an opiate treatment program or they learn about coming off it or they learn about how to handle anxiety or personal development or there's so many things in our local health district particularly here that are there to support, but the more supports, the more variety, the more things you can engage with and done at a reasonable rate, done at the rate that the client can handle it. I was on a program for 14 years in total, so I wasn't just in there and out again. It took me nine years to get to counselling, but I still made it through.
That's great to hear, Louise. I should just flag that the local health district that Louise is talking about is Southeast Sydney. Um, there will be other programs in other um, LHDs, local health um, district areas. Have a look and see what's in your local area. I wanted to just give Martina a chance to give us some last words. Um, any kind of last words that you would give to your fellow GPs that are, are thinking about, well, what do I do? How do I get support? Is this where I want to go? Anything you'd like to add? Yeah, sure, Hester. I mean, the one of the beauties of being a general practitioner is that we need to know a little bit about a lot of things and we can be experts in some things but we can also develop expertise as time goes on depending on the needs that our patients have for us to be able to provide that care. So some of the resources uh, that I think would be useful for GPs who are thinking about um, helping a patient that they have uh, with this kind of treatment um, would be obviously health pathways. Um, most of the Health Pathways teams that I'm aware of have quite well-developed alcohol and drug suites. Um, and so they, sh they should be able to find some really practical advice in the, um, in the clinical Health Pathways, as well as um, who they can get advice from in their local area to help them uh, with managing a patient like this. If you find that it's not on your local Health Pathways, um, then I would also suggest that the PHN has probably got a program uh, to assist GPs with managing people with alcohol and drug problems. There's also a national helpline. Um, the, the Commonwealth Government has quite helpful uh, resources on their website and the RACTP also has quite a lot of helpful resources. Um, I think even if a patient is uh, not receiving their medication from you, uh, it's helpful for you to know uh, how it works and what's involved so that um, you can assist the patient with the other aspects of their care, bearing in mind that they're on the um, opiate uh, replacement treatment. It helps to have an awareness that trauma is often in the background and being able to provide trauma-informed care um, that doesn't mean getting the patient to tell you all the details of their trauma because we don't want to trigger our patients, uh, but just acknowledging that that can be a part of this presentation um, allows us to be respectful and um, hopefully helps the patient feel more accepted um, and cared for rather than judged. Um, I think also just being aware of other issues like housing issues or legal issues or domestic violence issues. It's all part of the treatment and providing that um, whole of patient care is actually what we do in general practice very well. Um, so it's even really part of our care planning, isn't it? Looking at patient-centred goals and uh, helping patients to achieve those goals. It uh, can be a very rewarding part of general practice. That's great. Look, thank you so much, Martina. Thank you, Louisa. It's been great chatting to you both. And I hope that this uh, podcast is helpful for everyone. Um, there will be a list of uh, resources that you can access um, that are available uh, with this podcast. Thank you.